0: Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number eighteen. Today we're talking about House of Cards Season Two and our top five films to look at I am Eric Marshall and I am Nick Schlegel
1: and I am Christopher Gullen.
2: hey guys what's, what's new what's up <sighs> what is up guys it's been a, it's been a little while we were all pretty darn busy but now we are back again for episode number 18 I'm uh, no, just keep it on keeping on fighting the good fight keeping busy that's about it
0: that sounds good to me uh, Chris <laughs> Same here,
1: um, been busy, working, uh, did a little traveling recently, um, which was uh, fun, interesting, busy, um, all of the above. Other than that, uh, just waiting for this winter to be over.
0: Yeah, you no know, kidding. As I, as
1: I, I got up this morning, and it was snowing once again, and then I got a text message saying we're supposed to get another three to five inches between Monday and Tuesday of this week. That yeah, right. Right, too. right, that so right. it's uh yeah yeah yeah
2: kind of. And Eric and I have kinda such crazy, long yeah. commutes that uh, that always seems to really really throw a wrench into everything.
1: You you do. I am I'm, I'm I'm a little lucky in the sense that I uh, I don't have that long of a commute. Um, I'm only about 20 minutes from Lawrence and about 20 minutes from Wayne State. So I can't really complain.
0: No. Yeah, it's not. That's not too bad. Yeah, it's been perpetual winter here. I, um, I'm looking forward to it ending. Uh,
2: winter is coming.
0: Yep. You guys see? Yeah, winter is coming. We have to talk about Game of Thrones maybe when season three starts. So, because we'll, uh, I know Nick, you're caught up on Game of Thrones now. <laughs>
2: Completely. In fact, right. you know, Chris mentioned in episode sixteen, the canyons episode, that when we were talking about what our favorite episodes were, you know, we were doing our year in review, and he had said that his favorite was the television episode. Oh yeah. He, he also said uh, that we should probably oh, right, right. Re- revisit that, you know, in the future because as we all catch up on stuff, we may want to reorder our rankings and things like that. And, uh, and that's exactly very much true. So I just want to take this opportunity to say that I am definitely um, reordering my rankings now that I've got Game of Thrones under my belt. Man, um, it's got to be I mean, in there. Yes, yeah. because I mean yeah. I would w- had watched the first episode and then it languished for like two months and then I got back then I got this episode two mm-hmm. and then and then I just did nothing but like a, a mad bad dash for the finish line and I would say that I would probably take you know I had a, a Lucy Goosey number five as it was in Ripper Street it was sort of my like to play with number you know like I'll throw a a, a zinger in here just for fun and then be really serious about the following four so. I think what I would do is move community up to the number five spot and then switch them around and have Game of Thrones at number three. So the rankings for me would go, um, uh, what did I have? The Wire, followed by Arrested Development, um, followed by Game of Thrones, and then Friday Night Lights and Community, uh, or vice versa. Okay. Yeah. And Friday Night Lights. And, um, yeah, because Game of Thrones was um, magnificent television, breathtaking, heartbreaking, just you know, brilliantly plotted. Um, you know, I'm, I'm. It's currently my favorite show on television without without question.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely good. I think it was in my top five, so I oh, don't have yeah. to I don't have to make any adjustments yet until I start seeing other other uh, TV shows. But I know when uh, when uh, Chris finishes the wire, he'll put the wire up there. So yeah, we can we can definitely revisit that. I think the funny thing about these top fives, and I was gonna save this for segment two, but um, is that we do these top fives, and there's so, it's so difficult to do, right? First of all, and they're gonna change. Like what our top five Movies to look at today. Like we'll do it today, and by tomorrow I'll have a different top five, or I'll have like a
2: couple of them. I'll be like, oh, I should have thought of blah blah blah. blah." A couple of honorable mentions to sort of just throw out. But
1: uh... well, it's it's funny because when it came to this episode, I had been I had been milling around a couple, but I intentionally decided to. The, 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 there were a couple that were immediately just stuck out, but the rest of them I decided to just do immediately off the top of my head mm. um, within the last, like literally within the last half hour, out forty-five minutes, because because I didn't want to overthink it. Mm. Uh, I immediately just wanted like the ones that 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 stuck in my mind that just boop came to the yeah. top top ones. So that's that's exactly what I did, and I could talk about the films you know all day, but uh, yeah, I intentionally great. didn't want to overprepare.
0: Uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I did my, my top three were like that, too. Nick mentioned this maybe last week, two weeks ago. And um, I was like, three hit me right away. And then the other two are the ones I've been like agonizing over. Yeah, trying same to figure here. Out what to put, three, you and know? then it was the other two. <laughs> yeah, so. Have you guys seen any movies lately? Anything good we're talking about for pickups?
2: I haven't seen anything since The Hobbit. Um, since The Hobbit? Yeah, back in December. So.
1: Same here. I, I've been watching... Um, just television stuff lately. Um, I've had some other things to do. Um, so I've been kind of revisiting other films uh, for teaching. So I, I really haven't watched a lot of. Uh,
2: have, have you made any progress in the stuff? I, was, I would listen to episode 16 and you said you were going to watch Game of Thrones, Treme and The Wire. Have you watched any of that? <laughs> uh,
1: I've watched a little bit of Treme. Um, mm-hmm. I've watched Treme here and there. Um, and I, I, think to me it's, uh, spectacular and, uh, game of thrones. Uh, I have not, there's a part of me that wants to read the books first, but if I wait to do that, I'm never going to watch the show. So, <laughs> uh, I will, I will just, I'm going to watch game of thrones on the wire. Hopefully, uh, hopefully before the next episode, I'll be able to do one of each, a season of each, and then just kind of go back and forth. So, Good deal. um, you know, of course, house of, uh, house of cards. Um,
2: ah, did you get to that?
1: Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm absolutely, well, wait, wait, wait. I won't,
2: we won't talk we'll about it. And, spoilers, but I was, you know? um,
1: I was in uh, where was I? I was, I was somewhere in an airport and we were talking about Orange of the New Black actually. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, that, that new season I believe is going to be premiering on Netflix in June mm-hmm. this summer again. Yeah. So I'm very excited about Orange of the New Black. I read the memoir of that and uh, I actually like the, the the film, the show a lot better than the memoir.
0: That's interesting. Um, The uh, we finally saw. I finally saw her. Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, Oh, right. right,
0: right, right. Yeah, because uh, I guess I'm not as busy as you guys apparently, but uh, (laughs) but it was. uh, I expected it to be pretty good. It was really good. It was really. If you're gonna see a movie, if you have to choose like one of the like you know movies that are out right now, I think her is the one to go see. It's it was well if you can even see it still it might be it might be gone but um we had to like rush to see it because there's there're only two theaters still showing it around here but it was really good it was really worthwhile I would like to maybe do a podcast
2: about that um, I'd love when to you guys you get know, a chance di- to see I'm it I'm dying to see it and, and Yeah me too It's not that I've been too busy to go to a film I can always find time to go to a film I guess it's just because the movie going experience you have to be more selective about it like what time you go and where you go so that people aren't getting shot for texting um. Basically, right. it's just not quite as easy as it was when I was younger. I would just, you know, grab my keys or ride my bike and go to a movie. You know, it's like mm-hmm. particularly in the spring, spring and summer. But now it seems just more like an investment, and it's mm-hmm. it's uh, you know especially because I I do watch a tremendous amount of uh, television and film, but I do it mostly from home. Hmm.
1: I concur. I'm with you, Nick, um, just because of the fact that I have, I have so little tolerance for all the, the nonsense that goes on in theaters, um, the distractions that I yeah, I just prefer to go see early, early shows. And then, you know, when it comes to teaching and other, other, other responsibilities, that can, be, uh, that can be kind of a, a tricky to try and coordinate all
2: that. Yeah, Eric doesn't suffer from that at all. He goes as much as possible. But
0: That's great yeah I like seeing movies with people you know I mean people annoy me. texting annoys me you know um, I don't want to get shot or whatever. I told you the story uh back in the James Bond episode about the guy behind me who was talking yep. and I you know and all that stuff It's annoying, but um mostly I like it. there is actually now that you guys mentioned it uh, during her there was a woman somewhere I was in the on the left side of the theater, somewhere in the center of the theater, sobbing like loudly. Sobbing at the end of the movie, and I was like, "Am I hearing what I think I'm hearing?" Just like full on, full out, like, you know. And uh, I was like, "Wow, this really affected her." Grip, you know? Yeah. Once the lights turned on, everybody was like, kind of looking over there, like, "What's going on?" I mean, it was there's, you know, it's, it, the the ending is not, it's, it's not a happy movie. ending, but yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if if movies don't move you at all, you know, I mean, there's, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just the the the, the just the the vocal sobbing was weird, but hey, you know.
2: It's, uh...
1: There's something, Apparently, it was I a, like great, the communal there's a real connection for
0: her.
2: I like the communal I experience. I do love the... Com- I mean, yeah, I always yeah. did, and I, I still do. I, I guess what I'm saying is my motivations have been tempered somewhat. Yeah, that said, I don't go Saturday night.
1: At the risk of sounding like a major snub uh, I'm, I'm just going to say it, I, I like the communal experience, too, with people who are, um... I guess... Intellectually engaged enough with the film to shut up. <laughs> and, and if that's that means snobby. that's uh, you me. know, <laughs> if, if if you know if I, and I, that's why I prefer to go things like the DFT or the Main Art Theater or the Maple Art Theater, because you get that tip. Those theaters, by their very nature, art theaters typically draw people who are more intellectually engaged with the
2: film oh, and no, uh, who are Eric and I and Don went and saw Tree of Life. Holy cow, that was a toughie. It,
0: the woman next to me, at Tree of Life*, which a Terrence Malick film of all things, um, was kept like looking at her watch and, and and saying stuff to her person next to her, like, "When? How long is this?" And I'm like, "You? Why did you come
2: here? Why are you here?" Then, did you
1: did not research about the film, did you not?
2: Who knows? Then there was a lady was behind back, Don too. who was like, uh, oh, yeah. kind of like Emilio Estevez in *The Breakfast Club*, like had this big bag. <laughs> And just kept pulling out all this food and making all this, <laughs> you know, all this noise, you know. And, and he just turned it on. He's like, he's like, I don't what he says. Like, cause he's like, you know, come on or something like that. Kind of like an Arrested yeah. Development. Come on. And uh, and then of course we, we took pictures of the you know refunds will not be given after 15 minutes after. Yeah.
0: You know. So the art art theaters aren't immune to it at all to this. <laughs> but, no, you know, no, I mean, they're I
1: mean, immune it, to it. Know, but but you have a better reducing chance. your yeah. You're it, reducing yeah. your odds, and that's. If I sure. can reduce my odds a little bit, then I'm happy.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you, and and it's expensive too, but you know, I had some urgency because I wanted to see as many of the Oscar-nominated films as possible. Sure. So there's a certain amount of urgency to see, to see things in the theater, and I just like the experience. You know, I don't have. Well,
2: who wants? I mean, I want that yeah. big screen, and particularly if I'm yeah. going into a movie that like a, a movie that's a whole.
0: It's
2: an experience. It's it's, it's sort of yeah. like a whole m- world and you know topography unto itself, like a Ridley Scott film or something like that. I I need that. Uh, I need that big screen. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for me, there was this. You know, and a great example of that was probably in, um, in Prometheus. Uh, seeing that, you know, seeing that moment where the the um, where um, the 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 android's name I'm trying to think was named um, Fassbender's yeah, character. Yeah. Right? Yeah. David, I, David, David I think his name was. David sort of like triggers the, you know, navigation system, in, mm-hmm. and the whole freaking universe sort of comes up as this three-dimensional map, and I was just like, oh man, this is what the theater's about right here, it was yeah. just like that incredible, like I welled up with a tear, it was so so awesome. Oh,
1: that's I, that's like how I was in Jurassic Park when I saw Jurassic Park on the big screen, mm-hmm. um, and they you, they they do that Welcome to Jurassic Park and they, the big hand sure. of these dinosaurs. I mean, that's I just grin. William
2: score sort of
1: grin yeah. ear to ear. that This is what the movies all about.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's
0: true. Um, Avatar was like that for me. I think, but well, we'll get to well that that might. We should probably save all this for the uh for no, segment two because we, have segway, some, we might have some here. Two, yeah. Yeah. Works, we might have some overlap
1: yeah.
0: here. Um, yeah, so um let's uh let's wrap up pickups and we'll move into uh principal photography. Welcome to Principal Photography of segment segment one of that. Welcome to segment one of Principal Photography of episode number 18 of That's a Wrap. This segment we're going to be talking about our top five movies to look at. Uh, this was Nick's idea, and, and Chris and I immediately said, "Yeah, sounds good." And I think it's important to distinguish between looking at and watching. Right. Right. We're talking about you know cinematography, or or maybe special effects, or anything that you know that that is a film that you could. The way I thought about it was a film I could turn the sound down mm-hmm. and watch and still go, "Whoa!" Yeah. You know, that's how I chose mine anyway. Uh, we don't know each other's top five. Uh, we don't know. We haven't talked about this at all, and so this will be as much of a surprise to each other as it will be for you. And uh, we'll do what we've done in previous episodes with the uh, adaptation episodes and the um, and the TV show. We'll go five to one, all of our fives, all of our fours, et cetera. Et cetera. So just like we've done before with some of our other our other top five um, episodes. So for number five, Nick, I'm gonna have you go first because you yeah, was your idea. A good idea.
2: Okay, well then I will start things off. Um, now, obviously, I think it goes without saying that this was a very difficult, you know, task. But um, just like Eric said, three immediately came to my mind, and then the remaining two were very difficult. And then I have some honorable mentions I can just throw out at the end of the cla- at the end, at the end of class, <laughs> at the end of the segment. My number five is the resides with the brilliant cinematography of Jack Asher, really. And that would be 1960s Terrence Fisher's Brides of Dracula. Okay. Um, yes, this is a film that I saw. It was, it was Hammer's uh, follow-up to 1958's Horror of Dracula, or just Dracula, as it released uh, overseas in Britain. And you um, know the, the Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, teaming of, uh, of them as Van Helsing. Ben Helsing and, and Dracula, respectively. This was the sort of immediate follow-up, or not so immediate, but close to immediate, that Christopher Lee did not um, want to be a part of. He wanted to uh, distance himself somewhat from the role, uh, so he would not be typecast for it. Uh, and, and he did. He, didn't, he came back to it, you know, uh, what, 66 with Dracula, Prince of Darkness. So he took eight years off. And yet still, ultimately, though, he got, you know, uh, it, he became you know not typecast i mean lead <clears throat> to a tremendous amount of things but it still nonetheless became a, a role that he became identified with and so this this follow up does it has peter cushing reprising the role of van helsing but it has david peel as a sort of like uh vampire baron Meister, and you know it's a, it's a very interesting very interesting sort of psychosexual freudian tale and it's and it's just exquisite to look at Fisher's. Confidence and Jack Asher's like brilliant color cinematography just oozes all over that film. You can take any still from it, particularly the stuff where Fisher tends to emphasize uh, deep focus and depth of field via the use of gelled lights. But like for example in the inn when they first arrive there, he has such wonderful, interesting primary colors, you know, gelled against certain parts of the foreground, middle ground and background to draw our eyes to it and uses this color palette in such interesting and provocative ways and all the night stuff is beautiful the the vampires they're the 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 sort of like um uh pale almost like midnight blue tones to their skin um and just the sort of you know really lurid sensational colors that are sort of just and of course there's lots of um, it's a hammer, so I mean they were really branding themselves for a sex- excessive amount of gore in terms of the blood and a tremendous amount of hypersexuality in in cleavage and in really provocative situations and stuff and so for those of you who haven't seen Brides of Dracula I would say take a look at it, it is it, it's, it's I can put it on any night of the week and I just sort of it just washes over me in a very, very sumptuous way you know kinda of in, in a way that that early in, although it's not Technicolor I like think it's um, Eastman color. It's it's done in that sort of like almost Technicolor way where the the colors are like hyper saturated. You know, they're like really larger than life. And that's oh, my that's number five.
0: Great. That's great. Um, that I, I don't. Great. I've never seen the film, so I don't know if you have, Chris. But
1: um, I. Don't Chris, you and I, I watched
2: a little that. bit of it one night.
1: you watched. Uh... Yeah, I haven't watched the, whole, the the whole thing, but I watched clips of it with Nick. Um, cool. And it's it's. It is pretty amazing from the stuff that I've seen.
0: yeah oh, that's great. Uh, what's yours? What's your number five, Chris?
1: My number five is a is a film that that, that Nick introduced me to. He told me about, and I uh, I watched one night uh, when I was in uh, Florida, and uh, that is uh, that is Malik's The Tree of Life. Oh, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's you know, and and I was I was just so blown away. Uh, I'm not usually a, a fan. Of excessive special effects and um, the, some of the things that, that that the film does when it goes off to contemplating the universe, I, I think if it was done any other way, I would have found it to be hokey. But uh, the way that he weaves in the story and um, vis- visually um, goes through uh, kind of the beginnings of time. That just it, 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 and the whole the, the whole idea of, of parenthood that that's such a and fatherhood especially that is so um intricate to the film boy that that just really wow it it blew me away it, it really did okay I, I I don't know what else to say oh, uh, I'm, I'm
2: with you I mean that is a very visual film it's told through the visuals
1: yeah uh, it's it's yeah it's a, it's all visual storytelling, all visual grammar. Magic
2: um is know, one of the finest visual storytellers who ever lived so
0: right yeah, it's very spare in dialogue as well yeah. so it's one of those films that you have to watch you have to look at
1: yeah yeah, yeah. i mean um and i i mean I, that's that's uh, that's not necessarily a a bad thing um sometimes when films get too verbose they get kind of Trapped in that, but uh, there 's not a lot of dialogue there yeah and uh, i I liked that I liked the the fact that he took his time, and you know it it's I know we were talking about it, about it earlier when you guys saw it in the theater i mean the, the film is an investment not just and not even just with time but it 's an investment in your emotions i mean I got mm-hmm. It's very, very rare for me to become emotional, like emotionally responsive to a film, like crying or anything like that. I was really, really tearing up at the Trail Life. It really um, was an emotional experience. Um, Real Cinema of Attractions there with it.
0: Yeah, I I agree completely. Um, What's yours, uh, Eric? My number five is
2: um, is Koyaanisqatsi. Oh,
0: oh, yes, me, kind of obvious, yeah. kind of obvious. Not yeah. really. I but, I hadn't
2: thought of it. Now that you mention it, the entire trilogy is clearly you know uh, uh, belongs there though. Yeah, Definitely. I mean, I just picked Quinascotzi
0: because it's just one film, but really the whole series is, is, is it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it's just a, a film that I love the Philip Glass score, which oh, has yeah. nothing to do with looking at it, obviously. <laughs> but it's one of those films that, I mean, there's no dialogue, there's no plot, obviously. It's it's, But you have to, I mean, just some of those shots of, like, those time lapse photos of clouds oh, yeah. going over the planes or, you know, um, or the, the, the factory equipment, like the oil drilling stuff. Um, and then moving forward to the cities and seeing the sun set and time lapse over the the cityscapes. It's I excellent. mean, it's just it's just so great to watch, you know. Visual
2: tone uh, poem.
0: It's a yeah. visual tone poem. So, um, so saying- yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a very good way to say it. And uh, you know, it's 1982. Um, Godfrey Reggio, uh, Coen and then Paolo Scorsese, and I I can never pronounce the third one, not so <laughs> co- <could> <laughs> yeah. or something like that. I can never get that one for some reason. Uh, we'll put these in the show notes, of course, so you can get the spellings and, and links to them if you don't know some of these films. But um yeah, that's my number. That's my number five. Which like yeah, I said,
2: great maybe, choice. I mean, it's really good. Choice. You say it's hot. Really obvious. It's like it is, and yet I didn't think of it. It's not. Yeah. That's one, and, and I should have. You know?
0: Yeah, I think that we're going to say that a lot for the next uh, <laughs> for the next twelve movies or four times four times three, right? Twelve. Yeah. So that's my number five. Um, for number four, um, who wants to start, say I start with Chris? Nick started at five.
1: Sure, this? I'll go with number four. Uh, I don't know if number four would be considered cheating a little bit, but. Um, because uh it 's a silent film, so it 's meant oh, no. to be watched mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but it is probably the one silent film that again um, moves me uh in ways that just that that just profoundly with the with the acting and the storytelling and that's um, nineteen thirty one city lights with Cha oh, yeah. yeah. um, the, the the visual storytelling and the way that um you know, Chaplin is the little tramp. He, he, he. There's this, this great little love story going on here. You have the blind woman. You have the, the, the flower, and and mm. and everything. Um, wow, that film. It, it, it's, it's. It, I never get tired of watching it. I've screened it many, many times in classes. I've had students get moved to tears when watching it. And in all, you know, all of, I mean, I love all of Chaplin's oeuvre, but that one in particular is gorgeous to look at and just sit there and get in re- just, just really the beauty of silent cinema, I think, is just manifest in that film. I think silent cinema is so beautiful to look at, you know, whether it's Chaplin, whether it's Keaton, whether it's uh, Michelle, whoever, but um, that film in particular Really sticks out uh, because of its ability to tell stories, and the face, the facial expressions that Chaplin and um, Virginia Cheryl use in that film uh, are just magical. So that's my number four, City Lights by Charlie it's a, Chaplin.
2: It's a great choice. It's it's it's, and it's really on the precipice of when Chaplin was was still holding out from sound, right, you know, trying to get him to do a sound picture. And of course, he's like, "How do I get a blind girl to mistake the tramp for, you know, a wealthy man?" And it that plagued him, you know. In his biography, he wrote his autobiography. He wrote so much about how, you know, it was he had to tell that visually. How did I was he going to do that without dialogue? And right, of it's right. The, it's the slamming of the door, but uh, the car door. But nevertheless, um, yeah, I, I think everybody knows I'm a huge Chaplin fan, and and I would have gladly put, um. Charlie in there. I mean there are probably other silent films that that I would privilege over that. Um, but I'm I can't disagree with it. I think it's a great choice. Well,
1: and yeah. we, you know, we all we all have our own our, yeah. our own reasons, right? You know, you know for for what films that we would we would choose over oh, others. yeah, This is you all know? favorite. Total favorite. Yeah. Right. It's it's total favorite. Yeah. Uh, is you know, is City Lights the best film that he ever did? No. Uh, no, I don't think so. But is it my favorite to look at? Yeah.
2: Yeah, there you go, and that's yeah. the criteria. Yep. That's the criteria. Um, for number four, me or you, Nick? Doesn't matter, buddy.
0: I'll go, go there, and I'll, I'll let you go last since you went first last time. Um, number four was the hardest for me. I don't know why. I kept switching... Like I had my top three, no problem, but number four, I kept switching out different movies, mm-hmm. and it's like a roulette wheel almost, and then, like, Nick, you said something that sparked something else. I won't mention the other ones right now, because mm-hmm. that would be cheating. Um, but what I ended up on is There Will Be Blood.
2: Oh. Uh, the 2007
0: uh, film um, directed by... Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, I just love that film, especially the opening scenes uh, after he's in the in the oil, like digging for the oil at the end, and those sunsets and sunrises, in that in that scene where the where the um, Derek catches on fire, and and when the when the kid loses his hearing, it's just like the way that is shot is so. Amazing, and you know, I mean, I think it won the Oscar for that, actually. Now that I think about it, but um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not alone in this. But uh, it's that that's a film I could watch over and over and over again. And I just noticed uh, last night that it's on uh, Netflix right now.
2: It is so, on Netflix,
0: yeah, uh, which I did not know until until like I said last night. So I might I might catch it. Uh, I might catch it on there. But, um, that to me was I mean it's a long film, but it's so great to look at, and I've seen it many times. I didn't see it in the theater, unfortunately, but if there's ever if everyone if anyone ever screens it in a theater again for like a retro you know retrospective or something, i will uh, I'll be first in line to see this movie in the in the theater. I'm really yeah. bummed I didn't get to actually
2: great movie, great, movie.
1: very good choice. That opening with uh, it because uh, that opening is so visual because there's no it was almost no sound in that very those few yeah few there's few yeah you have too. that
0: Johnny Greenwood score that uh-huh. ree- that's it that's about it yeah that's
1: it. it's so yep. minimalist and yep. it's, it's just it's so great to to look at that film
0: yeah and that same cinematographer Robert Ellsworth, he did uh he does mo- he did uh Boogie Nights and Magnolia he does a lot of um, Paul K-T Thomas K-T Anderson's style.
2: movies great shooter. But,
0: yeah, he's a yeah. really
2: great shooter. I mean, I think he's sort of like uh, a cinematographer that's sort of schooled and and crafted in the way that I admire. Yeah, the most about cinematographers, you know, the real respect for the image and 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 um, <clears throat> a real knowledge and history. Yeah, of, of the image and cinematography. So yeah, I love and that movie. I think that was sort of like the real. That was when Daniel Day, I think, was really starting to. He had already started to sort of mount a comeback after his Oscar 20 years ago with some smaller films and stuff, but, it, it, you know, and working with Scorsese. But this one, I think, is the one that really sort of like popped him really back up yeah. at the public consciousness. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He got the so Academy so award nomination out of this one, that, uh, that one, so. Yeah. Um, great choice. And your number four, Nick? My number four is Out of the Past.
0: Uh, um, yeah, of course.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Not surprised at all.
2: Not, yeah, this is Jacques Turner's uh, nineteen forty-seven um, what we would call now Film Noir, uh, out of the past, which was which was lensed by a really unheralded well he's 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 more known now, but he's obscure for many years, uh cinematographer who's considered a real master, Nicholas Muzaraka. And um, I it's that's my quintessential noir. It's funny because we're we're teaching yeah, I'm teaching a, a noir course this semester and we just screened this last week. Uh, and I explained to the students I had that I had Jane Greer's autograph, and she was my favorite femme fatale of all time, and this is my favorite noir of all time, and that they were they have an outside screening later in the semester. They have to watch the remake of it, you know, nineteen eighty four's Against All Odds, so that we can compare uh, and contrast the context of a noir, a remake thirty years later in sunny L.A. and uh, I, I don't know what to say about it Out of the Past. I mean, it is my favorite noir. It is ridiculously beautiful. Um, every single shot is gorgeous, and um, the sort of long, protected takes that he does of Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer in, in partial silhouette with a lot of edge lighting, again, make me well up with the motion because they're so beautiful, and of course because she's so beautiful, and because she's just the, the most, like, uh, Fatal of all the, I mean, it's just, just ridiculous how what what a femme fatale she is. I mean, you look up yeah. femme fatale, you're going to get two or three pictures of the the most legendary ones, you know. But like Jane, I I kind of like set her above them all just because of her unbelievable ruthlessness and her ability to switch allegiances at the drop of a penny. It's just, <laughs> and because of her breathtaking beauty, which the cinematography captures captures so well, and so. For those of you who are you know, interested in noir, you know, I mean, that's I wouldn't start there um, because it's, you know, I think you're starting with, in my opinion, the the the, the greatest of them, but uh, I would definitely look at it, build your way up to it because it's. It's a real crescendo in the genre for me, or the movement, or the era, or the style, whatever we're going to call it.
0: Yeah, it really stands out for me as well. And if uh, Listeners will remember our film noir episode where I think we talk at great length about Out of the Past, uh, because I think you and I agree on that, Nick, that it is... Um, I, one of the best for me and the best for you. It's it's yeah. top top three for sure. Yeah, it's such a such a good noir, and the cinematography is is absolutely amazing. It really does, yeah, does, does such a great job. Well, and it's it. such
2: a wonderful mix of the urban and the um, rural as well. Yeah. we have you know, yeah. and with the idea of the urban always infringing upon the rural and sort of bringing yeah. its bringing its corruption. To the small town where he owns his gas station, you know, and he's he's trying to get, trying to settle down with a respectable girl. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so you have that lovely contrad, you know, contradiction, you know, between the two environments. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, so
0: that was four. Do we all do our fours already? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, yep. so three. Um, Take it away. I guess I should start with three since I yeah. since you guys started. Um, my number three is uh, Ingmar Bergman's Persona. Shot by Sven Nykvist, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, and he's, you know, he, there's another prolific cinematographer for you, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he did uh, Persona in 1966. He did a lot of things for Bergman, did Fanny and Alexander, and uh, I think a few others. Uh, But you know, then he moved on and did Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um, He did the Chaplin movie, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. you know, uh sleep is in Seattle, I guess, you know, if you mm-hmm. want to throw that in there too. But Persona to me is a movie that, that it catches you from those first images. The image of the uh of the movie projector turning on and that boy feeling the screen and the and the woman's faces mm-hmm. going in and out um of in and out of focus and all those really strange images that they've got in the beginning. But to me there's one image in that movie that just Gets me every time, and it's towards the it's towards the beginning of the film. It's maybe maybe twenty minutes in, and Liv Ullman um is uh, plays this uh, character who doesn't speak. Um, and she's lying down, and she's in this uh, kind of asylum sort of place, and she's lying down on this bed. Um, and it's just a close up of her face, and apparently the sun is going down, and it's just this static shot of her face with the light slowly going away. And you get her in, in this kind of a high key kind of situation and it just slowly and the shadows grow on her face and on her eyes and you get to the point where you barely see anything of her except for like the contours of her face and maybe a little glint of her eye before it get, fades to black. It's one of the most amazing shots I've ever seen in cinema and it's, uh, and that shot alone puts this at number three, but the film is just, I mean, it's just like one of my favorite films of all time actually. And, uh, and as far as cinematography goes, it's just, it's top notch in my opinion. Um, black and white, you know, and real, real good, you know, black and white, uh, when, when everyone's starting to go to color, right. Uh, But there's, he's still doing black and white in the sixties and it's just mm, amazing stuff.
2: Yeah, you know, what a pity that I I haven't revisited Persona in probably since the mid-90s. Okay. It's been
1: about that long time for me, too.
2: There was a period there when I was an undergrad where I would just go to the library, you know, and I had my list, my sort of pantheon list of films I needed to see and I would just rent them. You know this is the story I always tell my the film majors right in our class who aren't watching anything and I'm like come on what's the matter with you people you know you're supposed to know your field you're gonna major in this go watch some movies you know so I had this long list and of course you know a, a lot of Bergman was on there and that's when I watched mm-hmm. Persona and I got I have to admit I think I wasn't sort of uh, mature enough I think to really grasp but everything I've read on persona since then including numerous conference presentations on the film um, have always that base knowledge of it from seeing it years ago has served me but I've clearly to understand and follow what people are talking about but for example Eric I don't remember that shot you're talking about
0: so oh, it's so great you know, next, next time you I watch remember. the movie you will you will even well, you will because I mentioned it but you would have noticed it I think anyway now with, your, with your new sensibilities yeah yeah, yeah. what's uh, who should we go to next uh, Nick I guess for number three Sure. Number
2: three for me is now. Nah, this is a I. Just, I don't think a lot of people know this film, but it, it's it's just ridiculous how beautiful it is. And that is Valerie and her Week of Wonders, which was uh, lensed by Jan, Kurick or Churick. I don't know if I'm saying the name correctly. It's a Czech cinematographer, so it's you know it's going to be hard to know whether that's being pronounced correctly or not. <laughs> right. Have you guys seen it? No. It's no, from 1970, and it's uh, check part of the Czech New Wave, um, and Jaromil uh, Yudish directed it. I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly either. And uh, it is, you know, talk about we mentioned earlier, you know, visual tone poem. This is probably one of the most impressive ever mounted, you know, in the history of cinema. Uh, it will it will shock the utter shit out of you. This movie, how huh. hauntingly beautiful it is. Every shot is again, you know, perfect and pristine and 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 filled with such like visual splendor and such dense imagery uh, that it, it just, it, it you, you know, you watch it once and let it just wash over you and then you go back and just like are blown away by it. I, 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 lent, I, I screened it in my cult movies class a few years ago and students were really, 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 really taken by it. Plus it has this hauntingly beautiful score uh, which is, you know, and the film was sort of, as a cult film for many years, but if if listeners just sort of copy and paste uh, or you know to Google Valerie in her week of wonders, and just hit the images button, you'll see immediately what I'm talking about. It's sort of a a fairy tale surrealist nightmare, um, coming of age story. That's about the best way to put it. And it, it it'll just you know it, it'll just shock you. It'll take you into a world that you just never. You'll be like, my God, where's this film been all my life? You know. And so that's my number three. Valerie in her week of wonders is just, oh man, bury, me, I, with that, bury me with that film so I can take it into the afterlife. I'm going to put that
0: high on my list of things to see because I don't know anything about it. Do you, borrow, Chris? Borrow my copy.
1: I, I, I don't. I don't. So I will be also um, adding, is it on Netflix, Nick?
2: You know, it's a rare, really pretty rare film. Wonder. Yeah, we'll
0: have to borrow it from you. <laughs> For sure. We will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where are we? now? three? Did I say? I said mine. Chris, Chris, what's your number three? Um,
1: Okay, so my number three, and and it's interesting thematically. um, There's so much like nostalgia and emotion that's wrapped into my top five. And my number three, um, it's a film that I think everybody knows, but it's a film that um, it holds uh, a lot of meaning to me just because of the fact that I travel to this location uh, fairly often. And, um, the, the, everything, all the scenes from the film play in my head. And that, of course, uh, I think Nick is probably going to be able to guess it. and uh, cause it's a place I was very, very recently. And that is Manhattan. Mm.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, uh, oh, yeah uh, shot so by, shot by Gordon good. Willis, yeah, uh, who good shot, good. of course. Uh, yeah. And of course the Godfather and many other Woody's films. Um, the, the, Everything about the film—the fact that it was in black and white—I think Manhattan exists in black and white to me. Um, <laughs> it, it it does. And I know it might might sound corny, but uh, no, the I, I, the the city, everything about that city is just so beautifully reflected in that film. And I think about the film whenever I'm in New York, wherever I'm walking. I'm a I'm a big time walk. You know, I, I love walking through Manhattan and just looking. And listening and seeing the city, and I was just there recently. Um, I was there. It was. It was the the weather was horrible, freezing rain, everything. I was only there for a day, but wow! You look at that cityscape, and it disappears in the fog, and it's just like you 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 can see Woody Allen walking up the street, and um, it that film to me is it's a it's just the connection. Um, it's a connecting film between myself and that city um, New York City is my my favorite number one favorite city in the world and uh, that that film does it for me that one locks it in um, you know of course so many of Woody's films take place in New York but for me that Manhattan just nailed it perfectly
0: yeah it's a great film that's I mean that's that's that film is a love story too Manhattan right
1: it, it is yeah. Gordon mm-hmm. Willis he captured the essence of the city yeah um, you know in, in, in that I think better than any other film uh, has in the past I think that
2: well uh, you know that opening I mean when opening, when, I, when yeah. I see a not only just the narration the voiceover which is funny but when I see black and white images of New York cityscape shots shot from say Brooklyn or something like that. I mean, I hear Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, you know, and that's because of Manhattan. I mean, that right. that, that opening is just, you know, one of the all-time great, like Eric said, love letters <clears throat> to a city, uh, you know, to an urban center ever. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, and, and, and Woody and, and uh, Gordon Will were a wonderful Odd match, you know. Yeah. Um yeah. They, they worked so beautifully together. Um, you know, the the Woody Allen documentary on Netflix talks about sort of what an odd pairing that was that seemed to work so well, though.
0: Yeah, and it's got a good story too. Young Muriel Hemingway, yeah. interesting story, witty, funny, weird. I mean, it's just yeah. But yeah, it's visually, like you said, that first the the opening scene. You can turn the sound down and watch that and, and know exactly what's going on. It's so good. I guess that's a great I guess, choice. It's a I great choice, thanks. Chris. I get goosebumps
1: yeah. every time I watch it.
0: Yeah, it's so fa- that's so fantastic, and that was your number two. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, um, that was my number,
1: was number uh,
0: three. three. I'm sorry, three. And now we're well, going to number
2: we're two. Now we're going to number two. To number two.
0: Okay, um, uh, who wants to do number two? I think first, Europe,
2: aren't you? I okay, remember. I
0: can't be. I sure. want to be first for number one because my number one is really anticlimactic. So, but I can do. <laughs> so, just All so right. you know, because my number one will be really fast. So, we'll just do. You want me to do number two? I can do that too. I'll go last for number one again, so it's a ended. Okay, perfect, sure. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so my number two is uh, Richard Linklater's Waking Life.
2: Oh, no! I am. Su- yeah. I'm not surprised, but surprised. Yeah, yeah there's.
0: Um, what was that Chris? I'm surprised as well. Oh, yeah, I love that film. That's one of my favorite films of all mm-hmm. time. And uh, it's very difficult to watch. It's very, very difficult to get all the way through the first time you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being very uh, – I remember when I first saw it, I was in Ithaca, New York, and uh, for uh, theory camp in Cornell. I, we talked about this last episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the person whose house we were renting had a Waking Life poster by the bathroom. In the bathroom, near the toilet. So every time I peed, I saw this poster, right? And it was the end of the first week of, um, of, uh, of the. Theory camp, you know, and, and I was sent to the to the store to find a video to watch, so I went to the store, the Wegmans, you'll get a video, and I'm like, I'm looking for something lighthearted, right? I think Orange County was out at the time, Jack Black, but oh. they were out of it. It's like, oh, what am I going to do? And I saw Waking Life sitting there, and I'm like, oh, an animated film? I've been seeing that poster all week. I'll get that. That has to be lighthearted, right? Because it's animated. Yes. Go home, throw it in. This is after a week of theory and just what really dense reading. <laughs> I get through about... Yeah, it's just rotoscoped Craziness and all this philosophical talk, and people talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. I had to turn it off. You're like, isn't that stop? the kid
2: from uh, Dazed and Confused?
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. And uh, Wiley Wiggins. And I was just like, I couldn't watch it. So I had to rewatch it the next morning or the next day. And when I got home from Ithaca, I bought it on DVD and proceeded to watch it over and over and over again. I really liked that film. And part of it is, a lot of it is the visual aspect of it, the rotoscoping. I mean, the, it was shot on a digital a digital video over the course of six weeks in Austin, Texas. Very quick, handheld, and nothing spectacular there. But the um, the way it's rotoscoped and the way the shots transition together um, right. makes it very dreamlike. I mean, it's about dreams, right? So, uh to a large extent dream film and you and dreaming and all this other stuff and uh and I just I could I I mean I was watching it once a week for a long time. So
2: Chris was Eric phasing in and out for you or was that just me?
1: Uh no he was phasing in and out for okay. me as well. That was a little weird for a second.
2: For how long? Well, just the last thirty seconds, what you were talking yeah. about—you sort of like yeah. you would phase in and out. You know. yeah. uh, hopefully, it's not the problem anymore. Yeah, we'll find out when oh, I nope. when I yeah. edit.
0: But but just to recap, those last thirty seconds, waking life is awesome. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. Cool, but no, this phasing out makes the makes it uneditable. Actually, <laughs> in case
0: in case someone no caught that, I really like that movie, and it feels like you're in a dream uh, when you're done watching it. You know, it induces that dream-like training.
2: So cool. And that's my number 2. All right, Nick, you want to go? Sure. Nick. I I would just say that um I I I'm surprised but not surprised at Eric's number 2. Um and I do love that movie too. And again, it's one that I need to revisit. I probably haven't watched that in <coughs> I don't know, 10 years, you know. So I'm glad I'm glad we're doing this cuz it's going to um make me go watch a couple of things I haven't seen in a while, but like in particular persona. So my number two is a film I'm going to bet neither of you have seen, um, which is a pity because you really, you really should. I think you'd love this. It's, it's a, it's a masterpiece of European cinema. Uh, it's a masterpiece of Spanish cinema. It is uh, the spirit of the Beehive. Too. I've is? seen that. Yeah,
0: oh, yeah, I saw yeah, it in the theater. Uh, That's
2: right, Eric, you saw the, it down uh, in
0: Detroit. Yeah,
2: yeah, the Burton I not theater. I am familiar
0: with it. Yeah, the Burton played a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. I saw. It. Oh.
2: That's right. Okay, cool. That's right. I forgot about that. Um yeah I don't know exactly how to how to discuss that film other than to say that you know obviously I I have a, a a a real love for Spanish cinema and this would probably be uh Spain's greatest contribution say like you know in 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 the late modern era say post 1970 mm-hmm. um this was their sort of like the the modern masterpiece of Spanish cinema um which paved the way for um a lot of the new wave stuff of the '80s and '90s, and uh, it's made. It was made at the tail end of the Franco era, and and addressed the civil war and um in in very explicit ways. I mean, and so it was a it was a very um very ch- ch- you know controversial and challenging film. Um, and of course, the pacing of it is a bit slow. Uh, even today, I've screened it in, for classes and. Uh, Everybody comes to admire cinematography, but I think um, I think you have to be a little bit more immersed into cinema culture to sometimes deal with a an intentionally slower paced film. But that's the charm of *Spirit of the Beehive*: is that it's told primarily from Anna's point of view, who's a very young girl, and it's and it's sort of like her fairy tale. It's her it's her perception of reality in many ways. And uh, Luis Cuadrado, the the uh, cinematographer, um, has just done. Such incredible work. It's, I mean, it's almost the whole film is almost sort of like laced with this, like, like almost honey type honeycomb hue to the whole film, and all different shades of yellows are like the primary color that are used uh, throughout the entire film. And there's a tremendous amount of like honeycomb imagery in it. The shots are very painterly. Um, He was going blind, you know. I picked this up from. Stuff that I read over the years, he he was he was starting to go blind when he shot this film, and then he he mm-hmm. did actually go completely blind in 1980, and he committed suicide um, because I mean I think it was just a bit too much for mm-hmm. him. Someone who was his entire life had been nothing but visuals to go blind is really the the cruelest insult, you know, and so. Um, Eric what what do you do you remember much of the film
0: you know it's funny when you're talking about the yellow kind of honey hues that's what i remember when i think of that film that's the first thing that comes to mind is the visual aspect and that yellow like you said honey like almost every shot the color the color scheme is like that and the, the filters and it's just that's the thing that that really is a very very first thing every time you mention that film is is what i think of is the visual um Aspects of it, and that, and that, in particular, the tone of it, um, as well as the slow pace and some of the settings, you know, some of those open Small settings images. and all that.
2: I always yeah. think of, yeah, yeah. That, 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 sort of color scheme. I think of um, Anna, of course, and and uh, especially that shot of her when she's watching Frankenstein, you know, and oh yeah, the, the making, the making of. You know, Victor Aritha, the, the director, talks about how they shot that, you know, when they bring Frankenstein into the village and, and they're showing it in the church. And she's at the little town hall. I can't recall which it is. And mm. that, was, that was a very real moment because, you know, it was it was actually her watching Frankenstein for the first time in her entire life. And he oh, wanted, really? Yeah, he wanted to capture that moment for all eternity because it's such an important part of the film. For those of you who don't know, the 19, James Wales 1931 Frankenstein plays a very large role in the movie, um, and the, the the Karloff's monster plays a very <laughs> r- very large role in the movie. Yes, he which, does. And, uh, <laughs> well, it's a great film. Yeah, and uh, it, just the, the that like you know three quarter profile shot wide on her eyes as you know she's watching this projected film. And when he talks about it in the making of, and he says, you know, like this is this is like probably my favorite moment of anything I've ever shot because I was actually shooting a girl watching this film for the first time for the purposes of the narrative, but it all just was so perfect, such a perfect. It all
1: came
0: together.
2: It all came together, yeah. Chris, you should check it out. Borrow it from me. I have the Criterion version of it. It's exquisite movie. Yeah, it's
0: really good. And then yeah, that's great. I didn't know that. That's 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 a good little piece of trivia about the film. about that shot, that's that's really cool. Uh, So that's 2, 2, and then Chris's 2, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, for my number 2, I'm going to go back to another film that captures the essence of a city, of a region, of an aesthetic, and that is uh, Clint Eastwood's version of the John Barrett book Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Mm -hmm. shot by Jack Green. Um, I've spent I, I lived in the South for three years uh, and when I was there I I've spent a fair amount of time in the deep what was considered the deep South and I've, I've really I, I, I love it. It's a very interesting place to be and Savannah which is where the film was shot and takes place is an amazing city um, the when you walk through the city, you see all of these trees and these parks and you go to the cemetery where the, 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 um, the statue from the, the you know, the cover of the book and the, the film, the poster are, and of course there's, it's all mysterious and there's lots of fog and everything. And then you, the, the drag queen, the lady Chablis, they just, they just captured it. Everything about Savannah, about, that part of the South, the heat, the mystery, the sensuality, and the sexuality uh, is nailed in that film. The entire mise-en-scene just oozes with it. And it's beautiful to look at if you like films that really Capture that essence. And there, I mean, there are other films that really capture the essence of the, the, the South. One of the reasons I like, for example, like Treme, the show, is that it, it captures New Orleans. But I'm, I'm fascinated with, with films that really get the essence of, of, of the South right. And Midnight in the, Good and the Garden of Good and Evil got it right. It was a it was a nice, fairly faithful translation from the John Barent book. Uh, great acting. Kevin uh, Kevin Spacey is, of course, wonderful in it. Yeah, so, he's really
0: good
1: in that. I love looking at that movie. I love looking at the cemeteries. Um, yeah, I just I, I love everything. I I feel like I'm transported to the deep south to Savannah whenever I, I watch that movie.
0: That's a um, good movie. Yeah, it's really well shot. Yeah, I, I it? love looking at
2: I have not seen *Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil*.
1: Oh, we'll watch it together. It's, it's <laughs> so
2: good.
1: It, it really is. you know. I would like to see it very much. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so have, yeah you
0: know, it's very really it. well shot. It really is. I've never been to – I've been to Georgia. I've never been to Savannah, but I've oh, heard Savannah from
1: is, is great. That, uh,
0: you've, you've, you've told us that before. Yeah, no, I know. I've heard that is. so many times, but just haven't been, you know. But um, a lot like – I
2: Savannah from reading Pat Conroy's books, you know.
0: Yeah. I've heard from other people, too, that that movie gets it right, like the city. It does. So,
1: it yeah, gets the uh, city – Absolutely right. All the way down to the 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 sidewalks that are you that that are you have to really pay attention to where you're walking because they're all uneven and oh, it's great. (laughs) That's great. great.
0: Thank you. Um, So okay, that's 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 fantastic. So that was your number two, Midnight of Garden Evil.
1: Correct.
0: Correct. So and we've all done twos now. Round one. I believe so, yeah. Okay, so my number yeah. one, I'm going to start because it's very anticlimactic because we've already talked about it. My number one is Tree of Life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, Chris, when you said that for number five, I'm like, dang it. I'm like, should I change my number one just to make it more? No, I'm not going to change it. My number, Tree of Life is my number one mm-hmm. for all the reasons you mentioned earlier. And, you know, everyone should say I think it's some of the best cinematography I've ever seen. Um, there are some that didn't make it on my list. We'll talk about those in a minute. I want to talk about why they didn't make it, but that's the whole different story. So that's mine. So Chris, what's your number one? Uh,
1: my number one is, uh, I don't know if it's anticlimactic, but it's, it's um, not at all esoteric. It's Citizen Kane. <laughs> Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's my, it's probably in my top, three top four favorite movies of all time period but it's certainly my favorite movie to watch and look at over and over and over and over again I can't tell you how many times I've watched the film without sound I've watched it at home I'll just throw it in I will just look at it I'll watch it while I'm grading papers I'll watch it I mean I've seen it hundreds and hundreds of times every time I find something new in it I love it Um, it has some of the most iconic sequences in all of cinema, and uh, it's it's uh, and, and maybe it's cliche, oh, Citizen Kane, it's what everyone says, oh, it's a movie I would take with me to a desert island, but it's truly a movie that I just can watch over and over and yeah. over again because of its, its, its splendor. It's yeah, you know,
0: you know, what I like about Susan Kane in terms of cinematography is the is just the inventiveness. Right. It's technically, right. really perfect. You know, mm-hmm. and it, it right. but the, those those low angle shots where they had to cut. Holes into the floor, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And the shots, right? Do and the way they, you know, that's yeah, no, it's that's it's maybe it's cliche, maybe it's not, but it's worth, it's worth being on the list, right? I mean, it's right.
1: I don't I care, care if it's cliche. Who cares? Yeah. It's the one that I love to look
0: at. Yeah,
2: I know Nick loves time. it too. He oh does. my God, yeah. And, well, uh, the analogy I make there is it's kind of like. um you know when we did our Woody Allen episode and we said, Okay, apart from Annie Hall or Manhattan, you know, so I was like so it's like apart from Citizen Kane, what are mm-hmm. our favorite you know, <laughs> things to look at? Because right, I, I figure right. it's just not that not that Chris putting it at number one is a is a cop out. I think it's where I think it's where it all is for all of us, you know? Mm. Um so that's why I probably didn't put it at number one. Yeah, I
0: didn't because while I while I do enjoy it for his technical and um Kind of aspects and the inventiveness, it never. I mean, maybe it's because I've seen it so many times. Maybe that's what it is, because I've seen it so many times. I'm beginning to take it for granted, or something. You know, because there's nothing. There's not a single shot that jumps out at me in that film. But the film as a totality is is pretty amazing.
2: I I think they did a 4K scan of it. Not that any of us have TVs at at that rate. At that, none none of us have UHD sets. But our 1080P sets are. um, you know, uh, our watching Kane in HD is yeah, it's just exquisite. I mean, I think you Eric's right. We we screen it. I mean, I mean, like last fall, I had four intro to film sections. Mm-hmm. I, I screened that thing like four times a week. You know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, you know, it's it doesn't diminish its its uh, beauty or its effect or its allure, right. but. I think that's probably. Yeah, that's I the reason s- I, didn't put it in. I
0: still see things I've never seen before. Well, that's I why I it said, things,
1: you see, yeah, every time I watch it, there's something new.
0: Yeah. Um, maybe it was Blu-ray a ray version though.
1: Maybe, maybe it was a cop out.
0: Maybe you know. But no, 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 no. It's it. For me, it's it
1: was yeah. for me it was. Uh, that's where it belonged, and I never get tired of it. Um, I I don't take anything for granted in that film. So. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's just the and and to me the. The shot, the two shots uh, that make it are at the very beginning when you see the reflection of the nurse after Rosebud oh, the, yeah, through, the the through, yeah. through the broken yeah. glass, and then the final, that that last scene is there that really, really big um, shot where they're zoom, very, 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 very slow zoom of all of his 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 artwork, a, his possession. That's a yeah, that's a crane, the crane, the crane, sh- crane yeah, shot. The crane, yeah, the crane shot. All of that, and you see the things being thrown into the fire, um, those are the two shots that stick out.
2: Those are game. those are some good, yeah, I agree
0: with you on those.
2: The one so, thing I noticed recently when I watched it uh, that I'd never noticed before was um, where the snowball goes when <laughs> when it hits the boarding house. At Mrs. Kane's boarding house? Yeah, do you remember where it goes? Uh, it's just next to the E, isn't it? No, it dots the eye. <laughs> it dots the eye?
0: Oh uh, no, I never noticed that. Oh, that's great. Uh, no, I never noticed that. That's hilarious. Literally dots the <laughs> eye. It's like genius. I never noticed that. That's yeah, funny. Nor nor had I. Uh, no, what's your what's your number one, Nick?
2: I'll give myself. We're a... <laughs> all over. For me, I, number one came immediately without any reservation or any you know reg- trepidation. It's just boom. Number one for me is Days of Heaven. Mm, mm-hmm. um, to me, it is quite simply just—I would argue—the most beautiful film like ever committed to, yeah. to celluloid. I've never seen a more perfect, beautiful film in my entire life, in terms of its uh, its painterly aspects. Every—it's that's it's, you know—it is the film that you can pause it at any given second and then hang that picture in the in the Louvre, for example. It's. Uh, it is amazing. It you know I get so emotional when I uh I mean I literally well up with with, with here's a case where I actually do well up with tears every time the Linda Mance character Linda, um, when that the, the I forget her name the blonde, her friend early on that uh, yeah. travels to the to to Sam Shepard's um, uh, plantation uh, who gets when she's getting on the train to leave and Morricone's score comes up. And we, we cut back to Linda Mance framed by the sort of blurry sunset there. Do you, do you know, do you know this Yeah, shot? I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly the shot you're talking about. And that's not, yeah. that's not um, that's just one time, but like there's so many. But that one always, I actually sort of do a double take uh, because it like, it destroys me, that shot, how beautiful it is. And that's yeah. just one of like a thousand shots in that movie. Yeah. That, I mean, I've never seen a filmmaker give such priority to the image uh, not Kubrick, not mm-hmm. Lang, not Wells, as as Terrence Malick. I mean, he well, truly we all have things- Malick
0: on our list, right? Yeah. But that's right. the only director we all have on the list. Yep, all true. Three of us.
2: How could he not wind up at number one? The question is, what film? And for me, yeah. it's,
0: it's for me, it's. It I had matter. the Thin Red Line as one of my yep. um, honorables yeah, yeah. because But anyway, I didn't want to have two Malick films, but the Thin Red Line with all those shots of the grass and everything. So yeah, Malick was definitely high up there. Um, I know. Uh, yeah, so it's funny. He's the only director we all have. We all three of us have up there.
2: Very so. true. You know, we might as well take a, a second and just rattle off a couple of films that we would have loved to put on there, but weren't able to. And for me, there are things like Blade Runner, Sunrise, Apocalypse Now, yep, yep, Sus- yep. Suspiria, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and El Topo. Were like, you know, my other sort of five or six. Mm.
0: Yeah, for me, um, Apocalypse Now was on there. Um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid um, almost made it. Um, There are two I didn't put on because uh, they're too new. Uh, Gravity and Her, I did not put on because I've only seen each of them once, and they're Mm -hmm. they're new, and I want to see if they stand the test of time. I don't know if Gravity will hold up on DVD, not in 3D. I thought about it, but to me, the beauty of Scott Pilgrim is in the editing. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. Right, right, not necessarily the cinematography. So I'm gotcha. like, it's a great movie to watch. One of my favorite movies right now, probably my favorite movie right now. Great movie to watch, but I don't know how good it is to look at, at, if that makes sense. Because that it's more in the sense. editing, than the cinematography. So, so those are some of mine. That uh, and then when you mentioned the uh, Dracula movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, oh, uh, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola is obviously one that 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 was was bumping up, would have bumped up on the list if I thought of it. So what about you, Chris?
1: I for M definitely um, unusual one. um, Last Tango in Paris. Oh yeah. Definitely Last Tango in Paris is so gorgeous to look at, Um, and uh, of course a musical, The Sound of Music.
2: Mm, Oh, it's.
1: Beautiful and uh, the last one, the one I mentioned very earlier briefly, uh, It's just Jurassic Park. It's just a oh, yeah. fun movie. It's a fun movie to watch. It's yeah. a fun movie to watch. As as preposterous as the film is, uh, and say what you want about Spielberg, it's a fun movie to watch.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I have a Tyros up there for me as well, but it was just kind of again, you know, you only have five, so and I don't know if it holds up on DVD or not. So.
2: I, I should probably I don't intend say, to ever watch it again. <laughs> Before <laughs> we move on to uh, House of Cards, that I probably I think I intentionally put a misdirect on on the Facebook page just to sort of get. Listen. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I I mean I just immediately thought of four four, four four films. I I threw in you know like. I was uh, like, is he foreshadowing his list or is no, he messing no, with no, us? No, I the, thought that when the I saw that red herring. I mean I put in John Alton's amazing fantasy sequence from from An American in Paris and then uh a still from Rebecca and and a and Mrs. From Miller. Sunrise and a still from McCabe and Mrs. Miller, because yes, I mean I, I, yeah, love I noticed all the of those Paris. I like that. They're all exquisitely yeah. beautiful to look at, but I and I would be on my list, but I thought just to sort of like put a misdirect on it's there. great too because none
0: of those are on any of our lists, but they're exactly. all obviously they long <laughs> in some ways <laughs> that's great Nick that's funny that is good because <laughs> I saw that and I wasn't sure if you were foreshadowing or messing with us but and, uh, <laughs> all good films all great shots you chose too of thank all you. four of those movies yeah. thank you alright let's move to uh, segment two So for segment two, we're talking about uh, House of Cards season two. It just dropped on February fourteenth. We are uh, filming. We are recording on February sixteenth, uh, two days after the uh, the second season dropped. Uh, we have already talked about House of Cards, uh, of the first season. We talked about in episode something or other. I don't know or, what episode or, it was. Try episode. Episode three or four. Or three. Like I was gonna okay. say three or episode four. Episode three. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can go listen to that. Uh, I haven't re-listened to that, so we might repeat a little bit here, and I might contradict myself. We might all contradict ourselves. That's fine. Um, so season two just dropped. I watched the first three episodes. I,
2: first I've got five. one left. I watched 12 episodes. 12. And wow.
1: Chris? I have watched the first episode.
2: Okay. And I think the first episode is
0: the one to, to talk about anyway. Um, <laughs> but I want, to let's see for our listeners we'll go I guess we'll give them a warning when we go into spoilers. Yeah because there's a huge spoiler that we're going to have to talk about um and if you haven't seen episode 1 yet you sh- maybe you should just watch it before you listen to the rest of this podcast so we'll go for a little while without spoilers and then we'll tell you when we're going to spoil it okay cool. so um would you, I'm would you, I'll start real quick um as far as the series goes I've always it's it's I think it's a really good series, but I've always kind of it's just this side of okay, yeah, It's what it's yeah, it's incredible. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 hard to explain, but like it's it's just a shade away from being so incredibly unbelievable that I don't want to watch it. But it never goes over that line, or rarely goes over that line. You know, I think the characters are. Fairly thin, mm-hmm. the 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 plot is pretty outrageous in a lot of areas, but the acting is good enough. Some of the plot twists are good enough, and and my favorite parts are the parts where he's trying to you know, Frank is manipulating other members of Congress and trying yeah. to get his way. I love that stuff, I really do. Oh yeah, that's good. Stuff. Um, I know Chris does too because he's a big West Wing fan, but um, but uh, but so far what I've seen of season two continue season one pretty well. I mean, it does a lot of the same stuff uh, to a large extent so far for me, and that's all I'll say for now. What do you guys think?
2: I'll pipe uh, in with saying that since I'm twelve episodes in without giving a single thing away, I would say what I said to Chris last night, which is I'm enjoying season two immensely, largely because it seems to be very self-aware, and that's the mm-hmm. that's the key phrase here. Is I think there was a seriousness to the first season where I think they were trying to play all this off as somehow legitimate or something like that and, <laughs> That's and, interesting. I mean, when you have a title like House of Cards you know that the the show the, the actual narrative structure of the show is gonna be just as flimsy as that House of Cards because they kinda of reflect each other you know the the idea that one card is gonna topple an entire you know government is sort of like built into the sort of some of the leaps of faith you have to take to get into the show and I think the second season is more aware of that and when we we get into spoiler territory we'll talk more about that but as I said I'm 12 episodes in and that's not because it wasn't like you know potato chip TV I just you know and and, uh, so I was definitely enjoying it for all the same reasons Eric said it's well written it's well directed it's, its well cast beautifully acted beautifully shot um, but I, I still fundamentally have huge problems with shows where everybody's a giant sort of steaming piece of shit. <laughs> what about you, Chris?
1: Um I love it. Uh I'm blown away. Um I'm happy. Uh I don't I do not have problems where with shows where everybody's a steaming pile of shit. Um within the right context. And I think Washington is the perfect context for everybody to be a steam pile of shit. Um, to me, house of cards, I'm actually going to probably not binge watch it because I want to enjoy it. I want to, to <laughs> savor it. I want, I, I seriously, I do. Uh, I just want to watch and enjoy every episode. So I, I'll, I'll probably watch an episode every two or three days just so I can, Let's sink in and just relish the 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 evil that is Frank Underwood, uh, and just giggle with glee,
2: and then chase uh, chase those episodes with an episode of The Wire.
1: I will, I will chase them with a with, with with an episode of The Wire. I I I have always loved House of Cards. I think that the the people on the show are just deliciously evil, uh, and to see them as 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 playing out these Washington roles. Uh, is so much fun. I just—he's a great anti-hero, and I'm—I'm I, sorry, he's
2: not. <laughs> yeah,
1: I—I I, I know I disagree with you, Nick. He's a—he's a great anti-hero, and I'm sorry. I—I I will oftentimes find myself rooting for Frank because Frank well, gets. I mean, shit that's what they're done.
2: trying to do, obviously. Yeah, yeah, make it. To...
1: Yeah. I don't feel like I'm being manipulated.
2: I, I, I'm not oh, being no, manipulated. the whole thing's a big manipulated. The whole movie.
1: No, the whole I don't, I'm not con. being. I'm not being manipulated or rooting for Frank. I just. I, I, because of the fact that he gets so much shit done and.
2: Yes, I, I I often root for murderers and uh, <laughs> as vice 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 president murderers.
1: Sometimes it's so much fun to root for the bad guy. It no, really.
2: Chris, this is where you and I fundamentally differ about this show in we so are. many big ways. And yeah, the naive once for saying that. I thought it was, and I and I countered and said, no, you're the one that's naive. There's nobody I disagree. in. There's. Are you insane? There's nobody in D.C. that has the power that's why we have a republican and a democracy to topple the whole thing. They'd be no, I don't think Chris is making that
0: argument that no, it's No, he realistic. made it to me
2: p- privately.
0: Okay, well, I haven't heard it in the yeah. show. So, and,
2: um,
1: um, uh, I'll just make the argument. Uh, we can we can we can then just bring it to, to 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 discourse. Nick and I were having a conversation, and he said that he does he does not think that there is anybody in Washington that has the kind of power that Underwood has to kind of topple things like Underwood. And I fund- I disagree, and I said that was a uh, a naive um, point of view um, because that puts way too much faith. In the Republican democracy that we have in the United States, um, I think that there are people in Washington, right this very second, who have that that amount of power. Who who the checks and balances is so far severely out of whack. And you know what? I know this is a very 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 cynical way to look at um, the government, but I but you know just watching the way the government has been um especially after the Bush administration. Um, and I think even more so in the Bush administration than now, but um, that's just that 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 is I, I believe that.
2: No, I don't believe that for like a one trillionth of a second. It is such a web of 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 uh, interconnected um, poles of power in DC that no one person, with the exception of the President of the United States, who has the power. To do certain things, but even he, you know, with nuclear codes and things like that. I mean, but even, there is no way there is a ways and means and checks and balances there. If there's anybody that has that kind of power, their their name's Snowden and they're off in the in Russia. I mean, they these people, the FBI and the CIA. I mean, they keep a pretty stern watch on that type of unchecked power. So the the idea that that um, a Frank there's a Frank Underwood out there. Is, is absurd i mean it, that's no i, I don't, think, good, it, yeah. stuff of I don't think it's absurd
1: i i i don't think that he's i, I think there's a, i think there's probably several frank underwoods out there i'm i think that he hasn't used it but look at I how know. look at how one guy edward snowden a contractor brought the nsa to uh,
2: almost to its knees you're making my point for me and where is he and and what and, and talk is he gonna be the president or is he is he seeking asylum in some about uh, halfway around the globe? That's my
1: point. He's seeking there asylum
2: is. in Russia. Thank you for making my point. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't well,
1: think I I, mean, made, I don't think you did
2: because point. there's no there's no snow this no this this thing's not called Snowden, it's called House of Cards. So for for uh, for us to buy into Frank's world, I've always said is ridiculously flimsy. It just doesn't hold up. It's good television, but you tell me you think it's gospel, and I say No, horseshoe. No, I
1: don't don't think it's gospel. No, I don't think it's gospel. I think
2: it's plausible. Wow. I think, well, I, I, I have to. Say,
0: I mean, I don't think there's an there's nobody like Frank. No one like Frank exists, you know. Who's someone who who will just like murder a dog for no reason, (laughs) you know? And and you know, somebody who is so ruthless that you know he'll stop it. I mean, there are people who are so ruthless, ruthless they'll stop at nothing. But when when they're that deep a psychopath, they probably won't make it up to the vice presidency, I I imagine. But you know, speaking of power, what the one person in this film or in this TV series that has a lot of power that I find actually kind of realistic is uh, Raymond Tusk. The guy who sure. is a, uh, Oh yeah. That's a very believable character. <laughs> he has the ear of the president. Uh, you know, he's, 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 he's got a lot of money. He was great. The guy, Gerald McRaney is the actor. Major dad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so good in Deadwood. <laughs> Simon and Simon. <laughs> yeah. But in Deadwood, he plays almost oh, the same yeah. character as somebody who has a lot of money and and somebody that you cannot mess with, you know, I know Frank's starting to mess with him in season two, but I'm trying to take him down a couple notches, but you know, it's the influence of money and of people who have money that I think is, um, is, is if anything's realistic in this film, I think it's that.
2: I would agree with that. You know, money has corrupted everything.
0: Right. And, and it's getting worse and worse. I think there might be small groups of people who can, I mean, you look at, the banking system and the small group of people who can influence uh, legis, uh, you know, the legis- legislature to, um, you, you know, like uh, at the end of the Bush era, you know, there's there was an issue of uh, in most recent Rolling Stone where there there is an article talking about how this small group of people influenced legislature in the uh, about 15 years ago, and now banks can own commodities as well. And I guess the big banks own like all of the metals in the world, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. the metal, People who make you know aluminum and stuff like that, and that I believe, like that's kind of that that kind of insidious stuff. But that's just pure money and influence. It's not on board
2: with that one hundred percent. It's not
0: this individual psychopathic kind of strive for power. You know, I think except in the context
2: of the show, but I say in reality, that's a joke. I don't think that exists. And Chris differs with me on that, so we'll have to. I I just think it's plausible.
0: Um, Yeah, I think we'll. I think we'll have to to kind of disagree. But but the thing about Frank is, he's compelling, you know, he's got that Southern accent and he's very polite and he's very compelling. Sure. And, and, and you're supposed to root for him. He's, he's the he's the, you know, the, he's the guy through, through whose eyes we see everything. You know, I think that in the few episodes of season two, I've seen, I root for him a heck of a lot less than I ever did um, before. I think there were times where you find him charming in season one and, and you, and you, and, you know, you want to see him succeed in a way until you realize just how rotten and evil he is. Yes, you know, and yeah, then you and then you get conflicted. White, Maybe Chris isn't conflicted, but I'm conflicted about rooting for him. But I still kind of like...
1: Well, uh, I will hmm. say I, 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 I was conflicted after after he killed Russo. And after the season premiere... I'm a little more conflicted, but... Shall, a, shall little, we just... a little more. Well, <laughs> Jeez, a little Chris. more... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, but a little, little more conflicted. He's a little but, more conflicted. Just but a just a little. Um, shall, shall I just say what the spoiler is? Yeah. So let's. For, so
0: anybody listening, we're about to uh, we're about to spoil um, episode one of season two, and it's a big spoiler. So if you don't want to hear a, about it,
1: it's a big spoiler. We'll, well, I'll even start even by saying a major character gets killed off.
0: Mm. Yeah. Go ahead. ruthlessly
1: uh, and Zoe Barnes. He kills Zoe Barnes by pushing her onto a onto a train, a train, pl- a train, tra- train tracks. Um, the reason I said it a little bit because I didn't like Zoe Barnes in the first place. I mm-hmm. liked, but I liked Peter Russo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I wasn't necessarily disappointed to see her character get axed. I thought the way he did it was just absolutely just gruesome. I was mean, like, oh my god, there are. There are not a lot of worse ways to die than being run over by a subway train. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's bad. So I don't root for him as much now in season two as I oh, as I really have weird. in the past either. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, very funny, Nick.
0: I found that scene <laughs> shocking. Nick, I know you said, you told me uh, privately that you, you could see it coming, but Victim. I was absolutely, like literally my mouth was hanging open like, did I just see what I thought I just saw? Right. And uh, I I was literally like, what? And, uh, it makes sense. Like looking back on it, it makes perfect sense. And I can see how I, I could have seen the signs. I just chose not to (laughs) apparently, but, um, but you know, it, yeah, that's shocking, and it does make you root for him a little less. Although, but like you said, Zoe Barnes is never like, you know, she's always a caricature of like the plucky blogger, you know, the journalist who wants to get the story, and then she goes off and, you know, becomes it's
2: Her ambition so, killed her. And, yeah. You know, so, I mean, we can take what we want, what kind of meta-commentary that says about society and women. Although, I mean, to be fair, her ambition – I mean, she did not pursue a scruple to sort of moral uh, – um, Trajectory in, mm. in her in her ambitions, so I don't think it's necessarily tra- saying I we were gonna punish women who transgress into you know p- pursuing their ambitions. Uh, that's there, but I would say it's probably it's tra- it's it's punishing women who are, uh, or at least a woman who skipped many 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 rungs on the ladder and did some you know was pretty uh, behaved really unethically. But now we've got we've got you know Jackie is basically her surrogate for the rest of the, you know the what will. You know, Jackie is, is, is uh, They talked about that in for the first episode, didn't they? He's trying to groom her for whip. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I love Jackie
2: Molly Parker, sort of like becomes actress. the the surrogate, you know, Zoe in many ways. Yeah,
0: and she was uh, in. Uh, don't tell us, Nick, because i have only three episodes in, but um, he's still grooming her in episode three, and um, I was really happy to see that actress Molly Parker because uh, I, I loved her in I loved her in Deadwood, and uh, but. Yeah, she's going to be the surrogate in a way, but you you get the sense that she's just as ambitious as Zoe Barnes was. Oh yeah, she's yeah. more savvy because That's my she point. she's already so solid surrogate.
2: Yeah, we can watch yeah. her instead of Zoe. But I will say, for the record, that the minute she walked into that subway, I was like, "She's dead." I knew it right then and there, and I told Eric the, the second I, I saw it. I was like, "Um," and then I I totally. I, I as soon as you know she clears her cell phone data of you know his history, I'm like, okay, now it's just a matter of you know exactly when is she gonna get and how, when and how. And he's like, yeah. he's he's like in his Snidely Whiplash outfit. You know? I know. <laughs> it's like, come on, he's, he's got his like, yeah, he's got his top hat and his like long, you know. Like <laughs> devil goatee glasses. and his yeah. glasses, and I'm like, well, how? Where else? And then, of course, like just the ominous sort of like part of the subway platform, and and then the the thing like a better future, and he's hiding behind. It. I'm like, this girl is so dead. <laughs> yeah, I had I, a feeling, you know.
1: I I suspected that maybe she was, you know, she she was um, gonna get the axe. I didn't expect how. I mean, and yeah, you know, and and when you look at the, met- the the methods that various um film and television killers use to dispatch their victims, um, you know how how he got rid of Pete, you know, he he killed Peter okay, okay, but how he got rid of him was a far more humane way. <clears throat> Excuse
2: me, not only that to get but rid think,
1: of him than throwing. I mean, I stopped, That's a grisly.
2: Yeah. Well, that? here's the here's the thing about that, Chris, is that I think. Um, who knows how many times he's killed in his life? But I think the Russo thing was an opportunity that he seized. Yeah, uh, so you look back yeah. at that scene, you'll notice that he's like, "Wait a minute, this is just too easy." So he, you know, he murders him and makes it look like suicide. But I think Zoe was completely premeditated. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I could see that.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And it was sudden, though. For us, it was sudden. Oh yeah. Here's exactly. the thing about that episode. Just not to nitpick too much, but um, the. Uh, if they wanted me to binge watch, they should have cut it right after that scene. Because they, there was way too much after that scene in that episode that let me not watch the second episode. I didn't watch the second episode for 2 days until till till, till last mm-hmm. night, so almost 2 days later. because um, it was 8:30 in the morning when I watched that first episode. I would have watched if they had stopped there. I would have I gone immediately to the second episode. Um but whatever, that's just a that's just a nitpick thing. But the other thing is, you don't expect a main character no to come back for a second season and get killed in the first episode. That's what got me about it,
2: you know. Right. Um, yeah, I applauded their sort of chutzpah in killing her off. Yeah. Um and then we. Good got word
1: to work for it, Nick. That uh, was that <laughs> Hutzpah is the good word for it.
2: And then, you know, but it's 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 really you find out very quickly that, you know, you don't miss Zoe very much and <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you've got a surrogate in her in, in her character, and yeah.
0: And her would, buddy who's trying to solve the crime. Yeah. He's so stupid. Such a bad character, badly drawn the whole hacking aspect of it, you know. Yeah, I don't it's know a, if a bit of a rabbit hole. That might yeah. be in episode 2 It's just it just seems so uh, so tired and 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 kind of stereotypical and even just him the way he's just the, he's dressed the way he carries himself and the greasy hair i'm like oh, come on like i want to see him die pretty soon i don't know if he's going to <laughs> I'm not oh, i hope he does so
2: <laughs> stupid. what what i will say i want to address something chris said earlier which is and you both talked about it is like do we root for frank or not and here's the thing so i'm one episode away from finishing it all up and waiting for season three And what I can tell you is the show knows basically that, you know, it's, that's our protagonist and you're stuck with them for good or for bad. So basically you identify with him during, it's always a lesser of two evils type of thing. So as soon as somebody comes along who is slightly less evil, you're rooting for that person to take. Frank down basically mm. and then when that person's out of the picture you're back on Frank's side as he squashes <laughs> people that annoy him so we're like Jane Greer in Not of the Past and that we sort of switch our allegiances depending on who's getting the most face time per episode I think you
0: know, that's really that's
2: really well that's
1: said really man. well said that's excellent I, think you're right. I love that <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I agree yeah, you really want someone to good. take them
0: down but when, when they don't you're like yes and you serve <laughs> them again I think you're right yeah that's, that's really well put a nice callback to the Jane Greer thing, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's uh, nicely put, Nate. Yeah. yeah, I'll watch the rest of the season for sure. Um, I won't binge watch it either, but probably, but only because I'm busy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't find it as compelling as um, like uh, we made you made the connection the other day Nick to Game of Thrones which has a lot of political intrigue as well so, it's completely made up because it's in a fictional universe completely so all the politics are made up and everything is is but they're so completely it. fictionalized <laughs> but it's it, there's so much more at stake it feels like yeah. even though it's not realistic in Game of Thrones in ways that you're I don't get as much in House of Cards it's more of a you know it's House a, of a, Cards
2: it's, is such a sort of tw- I mean the beauty of Game of Thrones is the politics are of the real and the Game of Thrones is sort of the politics of the abstract. It's all about a chessboard in his mind and sort of the politics of the 20th and 21st centuries and technology and stuff. Whereas Game of Thrones is about swords and blood and numbers, you know? And it's like, and, and so I think there's so much more of a, and and, and more plot lines to, to juggle. And it, yeah. it's just, you know, and of course it's got more history on its side. You know, the hundreds of years worth of feudal and medieval Europe sort of informed <laughs> that. Whereas... House of Cards is sort of like the isolated sort of stacked Congress type of thing, you know, where we all we're all into it, and we all love it, but nobody's taken any like brick baths, you know, nobody's taken a sword to the well, I mean a <laughs>
0: murders that, king, I guess.
2: You know, we, we haven't <laughs> seen I mean there's a couple of murders and stuff, but but like in in and House and Game of Thrones I mean, every day these people are walking around with the threat of a of an axe coming through their head. <laughs> it just makes it so much, more, so much more so much more immediate, and yeah. Yeah, I think you're more engrossed. Whereas everybody's sort of like insular on House of Cards, you know. Yeah. There's the that's Secret true. Service tailing Frank everywhere he goes, and you know, there's yeah. like, where's the where's the hound to come chop his head off, you know, like in Game of Thrones.
0: <laughs> there. Yeah, I, sp- I suppose. Yeah, I, 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 I see suppose. what you're saying. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It's just. Well and, I want to make can, that point, Eric, because you talked about the political, and I'm like, why I like the political of one over the other.
0: Right, right. Because there's more um, more threat around every corner of Game of Thrones. And yeah. I I feel like also that the motivations of the characters right in in that TV series are much more believable uh, to a large extent. You know, there's so I, I always I said at the beginning at the top of this that House of Cards for me always verges on on just farcical, you know. It just yeah, almost, you know, kind of. Uh, you, remind, you know, what it reminds me of a little bit is the movie. You, ever, you guys ever watched Twenty Four?
2: No, sure, love uh, it. Yeah, yeah.
0: So like the first ep, first series or first season of that was really great. You know, mm-hmm. the first season, you're like, wow, this is like, there's I've never seen anything like this before. But by the time the end of the second season rolled around, or and certainly into the third season, you're like, how many times can this guy get in? trouble like this. And like his family's involved and there's always this international intrigue and all these twists and turns and these terrorists. And you're like, I don't this it it really it just starts straining credulity even more than it did in the first season. Mm -hmm. Where you're willing to kind of cut it some slack. And I think House of Cards for me on a different level of course Always threatens that. It always threatens to just get a little too silly, a little too, you know, kind of you have kind of like a Deus ex machina. You know, you know, you you want to get to this area, this particular plot point, or this, and and these things just kind of begin to happen very fortuitously, you know. And people start doing things that you're like, I don't know if that character would necessarily do that, or if anybody would do that. Anybody, you know. I think the Robin Wright character is splendid. Mm-hmm. I really like her. She's great. But there are times with her even where it's written where I'm like, mm, I don't know. You yeah. know? But there's I'll a still lot of that it.
2: I don't know stuff this season yeah. too. Yeah.
0: Me? Yeah. And I had a lot of it that last season. But it still falls on the side of good television for me.
2: Clearly. Yeah. And, you know, there's two things. I would. I, I think my final comment about <laughs> it would be Um, – I'm trying to figure out how to put this. Because there's two – I think two things that each of the show prizes, and there's sort of like different contexts for different centuries, or let's call them just different worlds and different time periods. In uh, in Game of Thrones, honor, keeping your honor, is a very uh, sort of important thing to the show. It's central to many characters. And you see no one with honor in House of Cards, but loyalty is sort of like the. Um, the, the loyalty is prized in in you know mm-hmm. it's all about like you do, who are you loyal to in game in House of Cards, whereas honor seems to be the much more important uh, attribute in in Game of Thrones. And yet it seems to me that the more honorable you are in Game of Thrones, the worse off you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, And cruel universe. It's a cruel universe. <laughs> yes, and in Game of Thrones. Uh, and, and sorry, in House of Cards it seems like loyalty is also a big dagger too, you know, and um, it, it's yeah. just interesting that, that like, um, because it's hard to get loyalty in, in House of Cards, it's hard to keep it, there's so many opportunists there's just just blow, they'll hedge their bets and blow with, they'll back both horses and see which one wins, and it's just it's a, it's a lot, yeah, it's the cruel world scenario, but in, in Game of Thrones, it's, it's done with um, I guess more of a moral more moral sense of right and wrong. And in House of Cards is done in this big gray universe of what's right, what's wrong. It's moral relativism, basically. You know? Yeah.
1: Right. No, you're right. There's a lot of that.
0: But yeah, overall I think it's I think we all recommend it still from what we've Definitely. seen so far.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Definitely. Okay. Okay. So we're gonna wrap this up then. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to That's a Wrap episode number eighteen. You can find this at that's a rap show I'm Twitter at rap podcast Uh, you can find us on Facebook leave us uh, an email please
2: drop an email yeah
0: we'd love to hear from you
1: iTunes Um, reviews we love iTunes reviews
0: if you disagree with
2: us let us know please do
0: definitely and uh, once again for that's a wrap I'm Eric Marshall
2: and I'm Nick Schlegel and I'm Chris Golem
0: and thanks for listening That's that's a wrap that's a wrap that's a wrap cut That's a wrap.